0: Welcome to the podcast of Greenlight Bookstore, produced in partnership with Libro.fm. Greenlight is an independent bookstore in the heart of Brooklyn, New York, and we host hundreds of author events every year. The experience of being in the same room with a talented creator and an excited crowd and listening to a brilliant conversation can be magical, and these live recordings bring you right into the room. Join us and some of our favorite authors and interviewers in the theaters, auditoriums, and bookstore spaces where literary culture happens in Brooklyn. We hope you'll enjoy being a part of the conversation.
1: Hi everybody, so wonderful to see you all here tonight. Uh, Good evening and welcome to Greenlight Bookstore on Fulton Street. We are thrilled to host tonight's event with Elaine Sia Chow launching her new debut novel, Disorientation. She'll be talking with Larissa Van, so you're in for an excellent evening. And most importantly, don't forget to buy the book if you haven't already. If you purchased a book bundle with your ticket, thank you so much. If you're here in person, hopefully you collected your copy at the door and if you're joining us remotely, your book will either be shipped to you or held at the bookstore location of your choice. Our interviewer tonight for this evening is Larissa Pham. Pham is an artist and writer in Brooklyn. She has taught with Kundiman, the Asian American Writers Workshop, and The New School, and has received support from the Jack Jones Literary Arts and the Bennington Writing Center. She is the author of Fantasian, a novella, and the essay collection Pop Song, a 2021 finalist for the National Book Critics Circle, John Leonard Prize. She will be speaking with our featured author, Elaine Sia Chow. Chow is a Taiwanese-American writer from California, a 2017 Burma Jaffee Foundation graduate fellow at NYU and a 2021 NYSCA, NYFA artist fellow. Her short fiction appears in Black Warrior Review, Guernica, House Online, and How Shares. Her new book, Disorientation, an uproarious and startlingly tender story of Taiwanese-American woman's coming of consciousness that ignites chaos on a college campus is uproarious. This orientation was named the most anticipated book of the year by Buzzfeed, Electric Lit, Goodreads, Nylon, Russell, and more. And Alexander chief phrased it as a multi-million pleasure, a deeply original debut. So you're in for something very special tonight. Elaine will be reading from the book, then Larissa will join her in conversation, and then you'll have the chance to ask questions after that. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Elaine and Larissa. <laughs> Yay! Um well first I just want to say thank you um, to Larissa for being here, to Greenlight for organizing, and Jean um for loving so much, and of course to all my lovely friends. Um and yeah, thank you so much for being here. So I shall read uh from the second chapter. This is uh well. You'll see, but all you need to know is Ingrid is a 29 year old um, PhD student, and her fiance, Stephen Green, is a uh, translator of Japanese. Okay. Um, Ingrid and her fiance lived in a two bedroom apartment in Barnes' graduate housing to the south of campus. The living room carpet bore a suspicious pink stain, the radiators clanked, and the walls were unseasonably thin. But it was subsidized and in walking distance to the university. Parked beneath the apartment was a rusted chocolate-colored Oldsmobile that Stephen had received on his 18th birthday, which they took turns sharing. By all accounts, Stephen Green was plain. He had a plain, thin face and plain brown hair. He wore plain glasses and preferred plain clothes paired with plain and patterned socks. He had the face of an unremarkable passerby, or when he stood in shadowy lighting, of someone on a sex offender registry. <laughs> but to Ingrid, he was perfect. She loved Stephen's generic features and droning public radio voice, the <laughs> way he only ate sugar free cereal and color coordinated his pencil drawer. She was uncertain about many things in life, but she knew with utmost certainty that she and Stephen they were meant to be. This belief also had scientific backing. After inputting their preferences for age, race, location, education, and interests, an online algorithm had matched them together with a 98% success rate. Prior to Stephen, Ingrid Ingrid had experienced such bad luck with men, she felt fated to be alone for the rest of her life. Although the idea of being her own significant other had a certain appeal, take that patriarchy, here too she had imagined a new wardrobe of shawls, autumn tones, and tinkling jewelry, Ingrid harbored an innate need to attach herself to someone like a pathogen to a host. Perhaps therein lay the problem, her ex boyfriends had called her hurtful names like clingy and codependent. Her first boyfriend, the film studies major, used to disappear on her for weeks at a time and with Mary a text message. She had to resort to temporarily changing her major in order to take the same classes as him. When she confronted him in Advanced Film Theory 101, he went into a rage, calling her hysterical and threatening to file a restraining order against her. But then he showed up outside her dorm room at four in the morning, saying if she didn't take him back again, he would start using again. Prescription Adderall. And would she forgive him? She forgave him. Afterwards came the engineering grad student, who had also been her TA for a general education requirement. On the first date, while she mopped up the semen on her stomach, he cried and confessed he'd never gotten over his first love. Ingrid was touched by his sensitivity. The engineering grad student had an impressive sex crush drive. Every single time he saw her, he wanted to have sex. His favorite position was gripping her around the throat while her limbs flailed in every direction. She once made the mistake of telling him she wasn't in the mood and she was afraid it wouldn't hurt. And he sobbed for an hour straight, rocking back and forth on the bed, whimpering that her rejection of him made him feel unlovable, which brought back all of his abandonment issues, stemming from his stepmom leaving his dad when he was 16. She never made the mistake of saying no to him again. Next was the investment banker, who she'd met through a blind date forced upon her by an acquaintance. He had a kink for watching porn together before they had sex, while they had sex, and sometimes after they had sex. Ingrid always had trouble getting lost in the commotion on screen, she was distracted by the soundtrack and set design choices, which she blamed on her introductory dip into film studies. But she said nothing. She'd never shamed him for having a kink. She wasn't a Republican. <laughs> the relationship ended briefly when she locked in on him during a blindfolded orgy, but the investment banker disclosed that his commitment issues originated from his stepmom leaving his dad when he was 16. So he couldn't be held responsible for his behavior. The relationship ended permanently when he broke up with Ingrid, citing that he just didn't feel the same way he used to about her. But could she return the $300 blender he had bought her? Because, well, it wasn't really fair for her to keep it now that the relationship was over, was it? And they were still good friends, weren't they? She gave it back and emailed him the warranty. The finale to our season of dating was the medical resident. He and Ingrid met by chance, just like in the movies. She, turning around and splattering her coffee across his pale green scrubs, He waving it off and asking her to dinner that night. They fell into each other like two bodies of water after a dam is lifted. He was the first boyfriend who pronounced I love you while neither drunk nor drugged nor in the midst of ejaculation. Ingrid too loved him, intensely and obsessively. The medical resident explained love was the reason why Ingrid forced him to act the way he did. He made this known by having her list why she loved him, how she had failed to show it, and how she would prove it mostly while on her hands and knees, though sometimes he allowed her to remain standing against the wall. He occasionally locked Ingrid inside his bathroom, having reversed the lock system, when she had done something unacceptable, like failing to inform him of her whereabouts after nightfall. He was also fond of projectile-throwing objects and screaming into her face, spraying spill across her cheeks, which he somehow managed to do only when his neighbors were out. Then one night, when he smacked her so hard, she hit the edge of the entertainment council and passed out, She could finally give a name to what he was doing to her and left. After that, Ingrid did not date anyone for a year and a half. She began to actively cultivate her spinster wardrobe and visit animal shelters, calculating that if she adopted a cat every seven years, she'd accumulate a respectable number before menopause. When she registered on the dating website, it was half out of curiosity and half as a dare. She expected to smugly scroll through desperate profile after desperate profile, feeling reaffirmed spinsterhood was the correct and sensible path forward. But then she was matched with Stephen Green. Stephen, who believed in vanquishing toxic masculinity, who did not initiate conversation by demanding shade or natural, but instead delightedly inquired after her dissertation topic and traded literary quips with her for a full month before she got impatient and asked him out. Stephen, whose, whose idea of the first date wasn't going back to his apartment to check out his DVD collection, which somehow always turned into a 45 minute blow job, but attending a lecture on the story of Grey Owl, native to Massachusetts. During that first date, they traced their similarities like a connect the dots picture. Stephen had grown up in a small New England town and was an only child, likewise for Ingrid. His parents were both orthodontists, hers were both government bureaucratic workers. Both faithfully recycled, both dreamt of one day sponsoring a malnourished child in an impoverished, war-torn country. The more impoverished and war-torn, the better. Their interests, intellectual, cultural, political, aligned a comforting symmetry. Make no mistake, Stephen was not exceptional, save for the fact that he was exceptionally unexceptional. But Ingrid had tried men who worshipped their own testosterone, men who had personalities and egos the size of small countries. And look how that had gone. Yeah, I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for reading that section. I am in the back like what you can read from. And she's going to read the section with her boyfriends, which I feel like kind of leads into my first. Oh, oh my gosh. Um my first question of the night, which is how does rage inform this book for you? I also read your essay. Um, yeah, I had a lot of rage writing this book, and I think rage that compelled me to write the book. Um, I was really mad <laughs> about. I'm like, where do I even start? Um, well, okay, let's take Stephen, right? So yeah. Stephen, I feel hopefully not to give away too much is just I think the new reincarnation of the fuckboy boy as the outlet boy or the soft boy and he just gets away with murder because he's abusive and he's manipulative but he's like I write poetry so I'm sensitive and I'm not an abuser you know I yeah so I think I was angry at that and um more generally like speaking to the book's themes I had a lot of just anger at how Asia, Asian people in general have been portrayed. And I think like all of us who've gone through the American education system have had you know, we're force fed like the most problematic um, books that were revered as classics Mm -hmm. where we are just shit. We We are either like not even visible, but who's read The Quiet American? Oh, Grand Green. okay. So, well, we, uh, we are, this, the whole book is like, oh, these two col- colonizers are fighting over this one 18 year old Vietnamese girl and she is almost mute and is described as a child. Um, that the only thing she does is have sex. Like she just lays down whenever they want and then she like colors yeah. <laughs> and is just mute. And yeah, so books like that, and even, you know, um, Memoirs of a Geisha, which is so adored. The story that won't die, Not Butterfly, which just is, you know, on Broadway is Miss Saigon, yeah. which is just like, it just keeps getting worse. I'm like, are you, are you gonna be fucking like, the next miss, whatever, but in Mar at Mars, you know, they're just gonna yeah, <laughs> they just won't yeah. let this story die. So <laughs> it keeps, like, traveling traveling. It, exactly, too, it, right? They're like, like let's just change it. Yep, yeah. let's skip yeah. every. Let's just take a new Asian country and put this story in. Um, so I had a lot of anger towards that, and was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write against them. I'm gonna mm-hmm. be the one who has control. And I get to make fun of them because I feel like I have been at their mercy that they got to mm-hmm. make me into, yeah, like a mute child sex doll or mm-hmm. um, just completely invisible or, and and I was like, can I, I not even need that to you. So, yeah. I, I fully support writing with rage and revenge. I think it's, I think it's honorable. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, justice. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think like a theme in the in the book, and also just in what you're talking about now, is like a history of like white, usually male. Um... Representations of like Asian culture and Asian women specifically, and like that sort of narrative being taken away from the people who are supposed to be at the center, um, which I feel like teaches in this text in like a number of different ways, um, especially in the academy. And so, for those who haven't read the book, like it is set like you know, on a college campus, and um, Ingrid is a graduate student, and she's in the Asian Studies department, which is its own can of worms, um, and the head of the department is a white man. Um, and I was curious about your decision to set it like on a campus. So, like, what made you happy? Well, part of it is I I had recently quit my PhD program when I started writing fiction, so I think part of it was like, oh, I I know this territory. I you know just exited this terrible <laughs> not always. I was in English Lit, yeah. Okay. So the so the department. Studies, no, <laughs> thankfully. Yeah, yeah. That ended up just working well for the plot. But <laughs> I was I was in the department English. Wish she was in, you wanted to be in. Yeah, but yeah. um. So I think there was that, and I originally, I mean, when I very, very first started thinking about the novel, it was going. I knew it would be. Uh, it's it going to be about sexual assault. Was like, you remember been a student at Columbia who was um raped and carried her mattress around mm-hmm. for yeah, for like yeah. a year. I was, yeah, yes, I was so struck by that. I just remember feeling so well, sad but also like proud. I, mean, I was just like, that is so courageous. Um, you know, that she was like, you want to invisibilize my pain. Mm-hmm you know she's like oh yeah and she made like a huge statement about it and she like I thought was like my favorite part of that performance was like that like it was like a heavy thing like you're carrying like this like XL like twin door mattress but if she got too tired her friend I'm cheering up (laughs) her friends would help her carry it and I just thought that was like a very beautiful yes yeah absolutely you said it so well I'll just let you can you just finish my sentence (laughs) 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 um yeah Exactly. So I was so struck by that, and Ingrid, and Ingrid was going to be this professor where there was this huge sexual assault case, and she, the, the there were like two boys involved, and she was a teacher. So that were, I remember it was all that. The novel was like very somber, very serious. And then I read about Michael Derrick Hudson, who, <laughs> about that. Then, um, in twenty fifteen. Wrote this like very mediocre poem with (laughs) Chinese (laughs) mythology in it. And I think he submitted it it maybe nine times, like a very small amount of times, and it got rejected. And he was like, um, the problem is I'm white and that's not in anymore. So I would just change my name to Yi Fen Chao, spelled like C-H-O-U. Uh, and he submitted it to a diversity issue of an Mm -hmm. anthology, which is like specifically you know written on the guidelines like this is for POC and he was like check that's me <laughs> now I am um and and then that was and Jenny Zhang's article on that I mean I, I just, again just blown away by the audacity like this it struck me so much I was angry like so many Asian Americans but especially with my last name
0: mm-hmm. which
1: sadly I hated as a kid because my friends loosely, we'll say friends, <laughs> would make fun of me for it. And I was like, why? I have like a normal first name. Why is my last name, you know, this, this like weird, that gives them a the chance to make fun of me. I hate it. Like, why aren't I a Smith or something? You know, you can't make fun of Smith. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so I was really angry at him and and it ended up just making like it just got pulled into the story, and mm-hmm. I was like, okay, yeah. So it's at a university, and she's now she's researching this poet, you know. So it it just the threads gathered together that way, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how it all happened on the campus. That was a really long answer to. <laughs>
0: yeah, I
1: think I think you know, just on a purely formal level, I think it's a great decision because I feel like a campus is a place where you know, the usual rules of society are upheld um, in a lot of ways, but there's also like a lot of sub- subcultures within campus, and there's this really funny scene, or um, like this kind of funny part, like this, it's like the POC caucus mm-hmm. of like the post-colonial <laughs> studies department, um, and they're like, you know, like maybe a little too woke, and like, are <laughs> like, Ingrid is like trying to infiltrate the protest, and she's like, oh, I don't know what to write on my sign, and she's like, I'm gonna write I'm gonna write. I hate white people and, and like she's like she like has no idea what she's doing like, yeah I'm, you know someone's like don't worry about it like write what you need to write and, like, like, you know you can you can see it playing out on like the campus and I think like um
0: you know that absurdity
1: of like being in, in school like even if you're not an undergraduate but just being in such that like rarefied atmosphere yes. where like everyone's ideas are, like, so literal to them, mm-hmm. and, like, that they're always changing, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like Ingrid's character is really interesting because she begins the story, or begins the novel, as, like, one type of woman with, like, one kind of politics. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, we really see her evolve, and I was really curious, like, how that character came about, because I feel like it must be really, I mean, I'm sure it's a very please like on the novel to write like such a funny character who mm-hmm. like you can kind of post on it herself but like yeah. that journey of hers like I was just curious like you know how did you come to who Ingrid was? Yeah um oh Ingrid yeah I put her through the ringer
0: and <laughs> I do have a <laughs> lot of love for her
1: I think like you say it she's it, it's a fun I think it's more fun to follow this narrator especially in this kind of novel where it's supposed to be comical where she's very clueless versus if she already knew everything, you know, I think it, it just it wouldn't have been as fun. But yeah, Ingrid's story I think came about from and so I am gonna be careful answering this question because I feel like when I answer this, uh it makes it sound like, oh, so you're Ingrid or <laughs> 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 something. So to 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 for the record, this is fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) Nonfiction, and you know, there's this whole defensive posture one can take to, you know, say it's not non-fiction. So I don't. Yeah. Not (laughs) equivalent, but I think Ingrid's also fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, she's so like not evolved. Yeah, she learns. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think before it was around really 2014 where I had to start questioning just my like belief system, because like Ingrid, I was I was always like a staunch Democrat, you know. Like turned eighteen, I was talking like John Kerry that year. <laughs> <laughs> was like polling, doing the polls and trying to get people to vote for John Kerry. So I was always like racism is bad, homophobia is bad. But like <laughs> you know, I was just trying to do that. I guess very moderate um, Democrat, but I hadn't questioned things fully and ways in which i had been complicit. And then when I moved to Paris in 2014, this was right when Ferguson was happening. And um, there was so much rage and so much, me, me and friends and people, we met just on the internet and we came together and we put this protest together for uh, Mike Brown and also Eric Garner. And I, I just had so much catching up to do. I remember being in the room with, where I was the only, non-black person and i was just like oh my god this is what it feels like to be white i am terrified of opening <laughs> and then i was like oh no probably white people just feel super comfortable <laughs> they're just like this is my safe but i was like oh i must okay Got angela david okay reading that next okay and then i I'd, be- I'd hear like another name okay right going to go read that <laughs> like i just felt i had a lot of catching up to do in terms of what is institutionalized racism and Um, the ways Asians and East Asians in particular have propagated anti-Blackness and held it up and and which is of, yeah helped that along and all of this was new to me I mean I don't want to speak for everyone a lot of people I do feel like for Asian Americans maybe it was around that time that we really started to have these conversations that I think like the Black community had had since the 60s and beyond and they were like oh, finally, you know, (laughs) or, you know, but for me, yeah, I had a a lot of catching up to. So I was fascinated by that journey of not like, oh, Ingrid is this hardcore Republican conservative and she Mm -hmm. undergoes this change. No, she thinks she is doing everything right, right? She's like, I vote blue. I'm against these things, but Mm -hmm. it's like, she hasn't questioned her. (laughs) hold oh, on i feel like i should turn it on and off sorry. Ah. <laughs> okay okay right now okay is that okay yes uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry that was okay, okay. Yeah. um <laughs> yeah so i really wanted to capture um that journey of of what it feels like to to yeah feel like, you couldn't see so many things, and then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, well, there's all this stuff there that was beneath the surface, and I was not paying attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the book really touches on, like, a very relevant moment in Asian American history, and, like, Asian American, like, political consciousness, which is, like, you know, this, this idea that, like, everyone's oppression, or everyone's, like, Marginalizations are intertwined and it's not really like you like you can't rely on the model anymore like that's that's not really something that like is equitable warfare, I think the way that you put that in the book is really interesting and honestly like very nuanced (laughs) there's even a section where. Um, one of the characters is like, oh yeah, like there was this guy who was like running around with this like anti-affirmative action. <laughs> oh, <Okay. laughs> yeah. Um, because I feel like, you know, these conversations happen in like a pretty cyclical way over and over. Um and like maybe the armature changes, like maybe it's not it actually, maybe it's not like something else, but you know, it kind of like comes back to these like, same concerns that I think. I, I think that the Asian American community is like constantly like yeah. sort of navigating um, But yeah, I think, okay, yeah, we've definitely gone really far. So I want to <laughs> make sure I'm asking you all the questions that I want. It's <laughs> actually, this is kind of connected actually. I think like Ingrid is one specific character whose political journey we follow. Um, but I also wanted to ask about the other Asian characters in the book mm-hmm. because I noticed in a really kind of like beautiful but also funny way that um, you you write across like cultural and ethnic difference too. Yeah. So like Vivian Bo, like the Nemesis, who is also like the locust character, um, is is um specifically Southeast Asian, she's Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. And I was yeah. like, that seems like a really good decision because like as a Vietnamese person, I would be like really annoyed about like East Asian, like kind of like supremacy <laughs> back in the day. Mm-hmm. So was, like it makes sense that she would be in like Coco and all that. Um, but I was curious about like the other like how you conceived these other characters, and um, yeah, like maybe how you saw them just like functioning in the novel. Yeah, um, that's cool. I love that you were like, yeah. Also, to me, I was like, of course, Vivian. Vivian has to be, I think, yeah, South Asian or Southeast Asian because. A lot of when I was still learning and stuff, it would. I also had to confront like all the ways East Asians take up so much space, and really just sort of gear the narrative towards ourselves and like things that we struggle with, and then literally don't help like other issues. It will be like, oh, upward mobility, but it's like okay, but the Hmong community is like the you know one of the poorest in America. So yeah, I think. I was like, Vivian, oh no, it's happening again. Oh. Why does it keep happening? Again? Um, I wonder if to take this out. I'll take I it out of my way. I'm just feel a little bit here. Yes, okay. Okay, okay. let's <laughs> if that helps. Oh, technology. Um, yeah, I think, you know. Maybe when I started the novel, it felt like safer. Oh, was it just off now? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> um, it felt safer to maybe be, to base all the characters on people like me, I guess, if that like, I don't know, but then it just didn't make sense in terms of the people in my life, Like the friends in my life are Vietnamese and Korean and Japanese and, um, Indian. like it, there, there's so many agents in my life which I love and it felt normal and right to include that and just write towards my reality and I did want to be very careful and um you know ask my beta readers to like please tell me if I fuck up <laughs> and be brutal you know brutally honest with me and constantly knowing that I, I still will always have you know, things I need to learn and unlearn and, um, but yeah, it was really important to me to show just the, the re- reality of all these different kinds of Asians in my life. <laughs> and I think in the beginning, what might've made me more like nervous, like, Oh, can I write this character? Mm-hmm. Um, I think especially with Vivian, because I had been like her in a lot of ways that I was, you know, like, circa 2016, you guys could just find me in fa- on Facebook like scolding other Asians. like that's what I was just like, do go to front your own. Yeah. Don't do not yeah. do some like self. <laughs> <laughs> so I just feel like because that world was familiar to me. I was like I, I feel like I could try to write about it. Um, and uh, yeah, like certain like Don Lee, you know in yellow. Mm-hmm. And uh, the collective, mm-hmm. I love that Lee, I think he he was really one of the first authors who I just saw writing not just about specific, like oh, like Chinese American family saga, and really just all the characters in the book being just one ethnicity. Mm-hmm. His characters were again like all different kinds of Asians, and I was like, yeah, that's like, it. Just felt suddenly more real because it was like, yeah, in real life we are in each other's lives and we, we, we have so many of the same concerns and we want to be together. We want to be friends, you know? And it makes sense that like the novel would reflect that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was, I just noticed it. And um, I mean, I think like, you know, for whatever representation is worth, which might be a lot or a little, mm. um, it is really nice to just like read a book that has a lot of different kinds of Asian characters. And, you know, there's sense that like, I think I don't know if it's just prevalent now, but this idea that like Asian identity is like a monolithic mm-hmm. thing, or like that all mm-hmm. Asians have like the same political goals, um, which is not really true. And I think it's, it was just great to like, read a text where like there were like very many different characters that have like different opinions mm-hmm. and they disagree mm-hmm. with each other, um, which you know I think in life is also like a very powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also wanted to ask you about like the element of humor and satire. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really curious if this had always been a funny book um, or if like, you know, that kind of satirical element got added in later, um, perhaps as like two part question, but perhaps as like the politics of it began to change, mm-hmm. um, like how, like, how did that come to be? Because you also described it as being a much more somber. Yes. Um, novel at first, but I would not call <laughs> a it. At all now. Exactly. Yeah. So like I was meticulously over planning the whole novel because I was, you know, I'd never written one before and I'd only written short stories and like, how, how does one write a novel? Well, I'm, you know, true Virgo will plan everything <laughs> down to the last detail. And so when I was, hadn't actually started typing anything out, um but was just meticulous funny it was yeah gonna be like this more somber novel uh, and very serious and i i didn't think of it as satirical or or funny and then when finally i had just had nowhere to run was like oh i need to start writing i can't just you know outline for the rest of my life this voice emerged and i don't know where it came from but it's not the voice the third person in that you see here, this was I wrote uh, three versions of the mm-hmm. novel. And uh, the first one was also in third person, but the narrator was very snarky. Like one of the comments I would get was "Who who's the narrator because it can't be a third, like an omniscient sort of floaty, it's, it's too opinionated. And I was just, I think I was, yeah, I was really angry. Mm-hmm. And I think writing about things that made me angry head on would have probably been unbearable and satire gave me distance to be like oh you can't hurt me uh, because I'm I'm laughing at you ha 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 like Mm -hmm. I'm writing about this thing that deep down it's like super triggering Mm -hmm. (laughs) but in the act of writing I could just trick myself and think all I'm doing right now is trying to make myself laugh you know, alone in my room. And that was, that was like the most magical time where it was, that was my goal, you know, just can't make myself laugh. Um, I think that's how I, yeah, how I got through it. And so it's a lot more toned down here, but yeah, I think humor. Oh, also right when I started writing, I had just read The Sellout. And I think that definitely infiltrated, you know, because I was so blown away. I'd never read a novel um, I've read funny novels, but this, the humor was so, it, it's like deeply fucked up. Like I would laugh at things that I was, I was just like, I am not supposed to be laughing at this. <laughs> and then, but you know, Paul Beatty knows that. He's like taking you there. And he wants to make you uncomfortable. And it was also the first book where it's so clearly, he did not care that like who would get it, you know, like it, it was, it, I don't think it was written for me. And but you know, I'm glad he wrote it and I can read it, but it was the first time I saw someone writing with no regard for, you know, does this need to be universal? Does this need to be, you know, please a white audience or whatever? He was just like, I'm just writing for myself, (laughs) for you know, maybe his community, but um, I was like, that's amazing. And so I think, yeah, Paul Beatty was just in my head as I first started putting So I think one reason the first version didn't work was I was trying to be (laughs) polite. And in the end, there is just one (laughs) and we cannot, you know? So um, I I needed to get that out of my system and I needed to write those like two versions before this one, Um, but yeah, humor I think really came in and saved what maybe would have been like a torturous writing process. yeah i think i think also like this the the sort of absurdist element of the book like allows allows one to like dramatize like very real things um and left a little bit cream room um and also make sure that we're okay on time okay, we're good. um like i felt like when i was reading this book it encapsulated a lot of things that i had to Thinking about and like talking about with my friends, especially like regarding like this big question of like you know like is it even like possible to like date white people? Um, it's the spiciest question I wanted to ask. Well, let's um, talk about, about it. I it. I'm, I'm ready. Um, but before we get there, <laughs> before we go there, um, I I wanted to ask you know or like maybe just mention like like. There are so many conversations that I find myself having like with my peers, um, and it's like, you know, how, like it's hard to write an essay about these things. I mean, you've done some of it, um, but it's hard to like kind of encapsulate this moment and then like fiction became like this, this place where like a lot of things to be ar- articulated in a way where you're not really making an argument, you're just kind of like displaying what yes. it is, and I feel like when you really like ratchet up like the absurdity, like you're able to like depict something true that, mm-hmm. you know, even though, like, it's so outlandish that it can't be true, um, and maybe it's, like, like, it's sort of the that question that I've asked you multiple times now, but, like, um, yeah, like, how, how did fiction serve you in this way? Like, you mentioned mm-hmm. that it was kind of a protective thing, but. Yeah, yeah, um, fiction, I think, is, yeah, is so freeing for, for that reason, that you can, exactly like you said, you can lay people out as they are and and just let them speak for themselves. Like, I think Stephen and, and Michael are so detestable as characters, and it was so easy to just, like, I don't even have to tell the, you know, the reader that they're detestable. I just have to let them open their mouths and just, like, shit would pour out. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, because that is real life. Like these types of white men incriminate themselves daily <laughs> just by like <laughs> walking into a room and just, oh, five minutes, I barely can't drink one sip of coffee, you know, and, and it started already. So it's, it was so easy for me <laughs> to, book. those are some of the scenes, like the dialogue that I didn't have to edit or was ver- left very untouched was just their sort of screeds because I was like, oh, this is like verbatim what I'm seeing either on the news or just in real life. Um, But fiction, yeah, you know, something I think that's tricky with fiction, it's like often there's this idolization of, oh, fiction should be free from politics. Fiction should be sort of like cleansed from that. It should be like universal or it should not be didactic. It should be, you're not supposed to, you know, try and change people, I guess, with your, poly, you know, politics and fiction. But I really love Viet tan Nguyen for saying with the sympathizer, I remember reading like so many interviews and going to his talks and he was like, no, absolutely we can and should. Mm-hmm. And it was so refreshing because he was just like, all text is discourse, whether mm-hmm. you say it underneath this is fiction this is non-fiction this is a political all text is discourse you are saying something about the world you're saying something about how you perceive the world whether or not you are you know that it's no longer up to the author it just now is saying something about the world right like Graham Greene and the Pride American having us like just this one mute child sex doll is saying something about the world and how Asian women exist in the world, right? So um, to me, I was like, I will use fiction for justice for my people. (laughs) Like, I have no qualms about that. And um, I feel like, yeah, it's maybe not everyone agrees with it. That's okay. But um, for me, it's, is it weird to be like that feeling of, you know, now that I have the mic, you know, this feeling of now that I have your attention, right, there's like old commercials in the 90s, <laughs> right, yeah, it'd be like, it'd be like, oh, donate to this to this charity, I'm like, I'm like, now that I have your attention, may I call, may I remind you of this injustice, you know, I, I shamelessly did that, <laughs> so yeah, I think that fiction and nonfiction was, was blurry. It's blurry in here. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. um, but yeah, let's get to the white man stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that can be formulated yeah. as a question in a number of ways, but <laughs> maybe the, the, the sort of gentle way to do it. Mm, it's like, nice. um, you know, what is this question of love? Like, a book, like, like what Ingrid is looking for when she's like looking for love, like you know, like, and this, and also this, like, very intractable question that I think is is brought up that she kind of has this realization at the end, like, pushing that creepy course you really didn't see. Which, this is not gonna make any sense to anyone who hasn't an had the book, but like, when you get there, you'll know what I'm saying. It's insane. It's really, really good. It's really, really funny. Um, but, you know, she arrives this question of, like, well, how do you ever know if you're being loved for who you are? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Lursa. I feel like it, yeah, not a lot of people can articulate like that exact conundrum and you, and you did so well. And that was something um that I really wanted to explore was can you well like on well, let's start with one on the one hand, like can you knowingly be fetishized and be happy? You know, mm-hmm. can you stay in a relationship knowing full well this you know, white man that I'm with has exclusively dated Asian woman or has own, you know, what, what even like just openly says to me, like, I love Asian women. <laughs> yeah. Like, can You're you stay, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like here's a prize. And can you willingly stay in that relationship and, and be happy? And I think for a long time in the past, like Asian women were like, yeah, why is that a problem? I have have preferences. Like, also because white guys would use that, the preference thing, as, like, something very normal. And something a white guy told me was, like, everyone has preferences. Some people like Italians, and some people like redheads. So liking Asians is no different. (laughs) You see the things they come up with way they incriminate themselves immediately. So um, I think that is something... uh, you know, surface level, that surface level is very, go very deep that I think more and more people have to struggle with. It's also like, what if you're already in love, right? What if you've built a life together and then you find out? And so not to give too many spoilers, but like, yeah, that's, what do you do if it's not just, oh, first Tinder date, red flag, I'm out of here. You know, that's easy. You know, you can have your list of red flags and, and just not date, and then, um, but yeah, if you find out down, down the line, and that's why I have some um, friends POC who are now just like, well, I will, the solution is I will not date, you know, white people anymore because they just can't find an, an 100% secure way, like foolproof way of knowing, you know, now in the past and the future, I won't be seen as a fetish or object. And then, yeah, I think what you're talking about with with Ingrid's, um, like, what she's looking for, yeah, like, is it enough? Is it enough for her to be loved? Because I think that's something that I really didn't want to give Stephen, but I was convinced, to. I was like, nah, okay, it makes sense, is that in his mind, he loves her. Like, mm-hmm. it would have been easier to write the novel, I think, with it, it being, like, yeah, I just see you as, like, a, a thing, like, you know, conveyor belt. Like, you you really have to know I don't have any real love for you. But I think in his mind, he's like, yes, I really love you. And Ingrid has to think, you know, is, is that something I'll accept? Um, and I think what I personally think <laughs> is when you enter in a relationship with, just I like think, in, in our country that has a 200-year-old Asian fetish, <laughs> In a white, you know, white supremacy has a two hundred year old Asian fetish, and um, I don't think these any of these relationships can be innocent beyond you know a shadow of a doubt. It's just you enter into the relationship knowing there is a caveat, knowing that the rug might be pulled out from under you, right? And something I wanted to explore with Stephen is sometimes you don't know. Like I had this ex boyfriend from college. Um, he fucking sucked.
0: (laughs) In retrospect, oh my god, what was I
1: even doing? That's what I wanted to show with Ingrid, is that she is like funny and charming and and all these great qualities. And Stephen, as I try to show in that excerpt, is literally like a potato. He's just a walking, flavorless, uncooked, raw potato with this amazing Asian woman, anyways. Not to reject like me in this ex, but um, like <laughs> I saw on Facebook a few years ago this haunting, he, he got married to um, uh, a Filipino woman. I saw this haunting photo that he had taken of her uh, mopping. <laughs> The floor, and his feet like his feet are up in the photo, so you see his feet sticking out. She's mopping the floor. He's holding like a, a like a beer or something, and then the caption is "Living the life" oh, as a Filipino woman. And the the politics of that, just like the Filipino, you know, the Filipino community, like not even having the historical the sensitivity of 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 you know labor like manual labor. But, I was just like, holy fucking shit, what if that was me? Yeah, Um, it could have been you. Like, yeah, and that's the thing is, I didn't know this until, I didn't know this until, right, like, years later. Like, what if we just happily were together, you know? Mm -hmm, Yeah, Mm -hmm. so I think that is the one thing Ingrid realizes. If I stay with Steven, I must accept doubt. Mm-hmm. As a caveat, and I cannot escape it, and mm. that's kind of what I think. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a, it's it's hard and it's tricky, and everyone wants to think their love is pure, right? And like that, the outside world can't touch it. But man, it's hard. What do you guys think? <laughs> yeah, the time for Q and A. Well, so um, yeah, I mean I think you know I, I don't have an answer to that which I did, but this conversation, um, because I think when, when I finished reading the book um, you know, I think it has like happy ending. Hey. <laughs> um <laughs> but uh I, I was struck by this question of like, well how how do you know um you know how will you ever know? And I think, I think um, I've definitely had or, like, gone through phases in the past where I'm, like, well, I just, like, won't date or I won't date people or, like, I won't date white people or, like, I won't date men um, or whatever. But, you know, I feel like those – kind of like boundaries that try to like close like to close a circle around like who you can love or who you're going to encounter who you might love is not really like it's never really worked out for me. Like, you know, you if you go around and you're like, I'm never gonna fall in love with white man. Of course the first one you're gonna fall in love with white man it's just gonna happen. Love Love is live season one. They're still together. They're still together and they look great and they're so happy. She's so Um, funny because you just kept saying like (laughs) <laughs> almost as if apologetically this a black woman falls in love with this white man and she doesn't know that he's white and and she kept apologetically being like guys i didn't know <laughs> i fell on accident like, forgive me she's like bringing him home he was like a firefighter <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> I I and
1: yeah and and i guess the other sort of part of that is that like you know in every relationship um there is going to be so many different gradients of power um whether it's age or you know like the particular positions you might occupy in society like you know one person is like i don't know high-powered ceo and a person's like i don't want to work ever um you know or like finances or class um like there's so many like gradients of power that can like come to play in a relationship um and and you know race is one of them and, and i think like more and more more and while, while reading it i was like oh are people gonna get this like i i get excited so like I, I guess that right but um <laughs> but like the, uh, the people that's talking too, are they going to get that's like a question that i had a lot while reading it right um so I don't know what did, did that cross your mind while you were shorted um, yeah what, was that ever a concern for you when writing it and you ever think of, like oh I should I should change things so the people that I want to get this aren't like offended by it mm. you know because I was coming off that of BMI, <laughs> <laughs> I was like no I will not change <laughs> 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 I always remember I mean Yeah, I feel like there'd be little things where I'd be like, oh, should I say, like, Japan obsessed person, or should I just say Weaboo? And I was like, clearly the answer is Weaboo. (laughs) And if you don't know what Weaboo is, Google is a step away, you know? (laughs) I I knew I had, I knew if the book was to work at all and be true to, you know, my life and, or just, how I see the world, I knew I had to just write it for as if in my head it was only going to be read by someone like Like me, essentially. <laughs> like I had to just because um, otherwise once you introduce the idea of the quote unquote universal audience it's like, you know, things are diluted mm-hmm. and I think it's never to our advantage. Yeah. I like this question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else?
0: You want to come grab the mic from me?
1: Yeah. Sure, sure that works too. Um, okay, so you mentioned, the, you mentioned the man that you dated in college, the not so
0: amazing person. Um, and then
1: you do that parallel to Ingrid and her finding herself in a situation where she's dating someone and then she realizes, oh my God, I think this person has a fetish. So I guess I'm wondering if you have any like relationship advice that you would give like your younger self and, or. Oh my God. (laughs) Coming in with the hot personal discovery, (laughs) reflection, pressure. Feel free to. I would say done as fast as you can. I would say, why are, Elaine, why are you so invested in proving that you're desirable to someone who, yeah, is just so mediocre? I think, (laughs) I think (laughs) Elaine had so much to unpack about what she'd been taught to desire. Um, You know, what was, what she considered acceptance. I think yeah, I wish, I I really wish I could go back in time and tell her to wake up and realize, yeah, that approval from white men, um, being wanted by white men is not going to like reverse your childhood racial, racist trauma, I think. Because I think a lot of it sometimes when, if you were bullied or hurt by like a let's say yeah like a white boy you know in elementary school or something it becomes like a weird fucked up proof of oh well can I make him want me now you see what I mean like I think it's so fucked up but I think it's something that it's like oh I can I've now I've now proven something like I've made you want something from me and not even realizing at that age like, that that that's going to fuck you up, Elaine. <laughs> you should not give yourself, like, you know, to someone who, like, yeah, 10 years ago um, called you, like, a name or something. I'm not saying that this exact situation happened, but you know what I mean? Just generally, like, those types of guys, I think that I was trying to prove something, get something, you know, approval from, we're absolutely like making fun of like the poor Asian girl at the school or something. So yeah, I would, uh, I would, I, I don't even know how to go back in time without also changing the world. It's like, because if I went back in time in like the 80s and 90s, I just, the world hadn't, wouldn't have changed enough. It's like, I need, I would need to like yank her forward into mm-hmm. now, which is sad. Yeah. I love that question. Thank you, (laughs) Margaret. I love you. Okay, I feel like that was a really full conversation. (laughs) So, give it up one more time. Sorry about all the technical issues to everyone near and far. And thank you guys so much. Have a great evening. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Greenlight Bookstore Podcast. We're grateful to our production partners at Libro.fm. Libro.fm provides access to thousands of digital audiobooks through partnerships with independent bookstores nationwide. New episodes of this podcast are posted every other Thursday. You can subscribe to the Greenlight Bookstore podcast on iTunes, download it as a free audiobook from Libro.fm, or stream it on greenlightbookstore.com slash podcast. There you can also find past episodes and links to purchase the books discussed. The best way to support your local independent bookstore and the literary communities they serve is as simple as buying a book.